Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in the world of nutrition. Uh, today is day two of the directions in, uh, future directions in choline symposia here with uh, the University of North Carolina, and I have two guests with me. First is Dr. Jonathan Bortz. Jonathan is the VP of uh, Nutrition Science at Balchem, and Dr. Eric Capio, he's a manager of Nutrition Science also at Balchem. Gentlemen, uh, we had a great day yesterday uh, here at the symposia. I learned a lot. Eric, the first day was all about choline and prenatal uh, nutrition and choline and early life and childhood nutrition. What were some of your key takeaways from day day one? You know, I think for me, it's just so incredible to see how far the field has advanced, even in my time with, just my time with Balchem. Uh, you know, we're fortunate to be in a world now where there's been a lot of randomized controlled trials showing the benefits of choline supplementation uh, during pregnancy and how that impacts uh, offspring development. So what we saw yesterday um, at the sessions was the benefits of choline supplement, maternal choline supplementation in terms of baby's cognition, uh, both immediately after birth and persisting up to seven years in life. Um, improvements in DHA status as well when choline and DHA were given together. Uh, we also saw a lot of incredible data on the ability of choline to support what we call fetal resilience, its ability to sort of adapt and, and deal with external stressors, be it emotional stressors that mom faces, uh, be it exogenous toxin stressors that mom may consume. Um, the abilities that choline seems to demonstrate in early life are really remarkable. Uh, we also had a good discussion on choline uh, and lactation and how um, uh, some of the specific metabolites of choline were present in breast milk and some of the differential effects of that, which is an area that does not get enough attention, sadly. Um, so just a lot. We also had a, a good dis uh, discussion on the role of choline in food aid and how adding choline to certain food aid programs might benefit in terms of uh, areas of severe acute malnutrition. So a really broad ranging, and, and we really took the charge of trying to identify the role of choline in early life nutrition um, broadly, and I think that's reflected by its really varied roles and, and the varied clinical trials that are out there. So really, really exciting day yesterday. Yeah, it was a great day. Just as a reminder to our audience that we released uh, Day One's podcast last week. Please go back and listen to that one, full of great details and information there. Uh, Dr. Bortz, uh, day two is coming up. We're going to shift gears just a little bit, and we're going to be talking about choline and adult nutrition. What's some of the things the audience can expect to hear uh, from today? Well, Scott, first of all, let me say this. About five years ago, when some of the uh, very exciting information was being developed and generated uh, by the, our clinical investigator collaborators about the benefit during pregnancy and children and so on and so forth, I remember having a um, meeting with some uh, potential uh, customers who were impressed with all the data, and when everything was said and done, they turned around and said to me, well, what about us? Mm -hmm. And what that did was it opened my eyes at that time to say we really needed to expand our vision into childhood, young adulthood, and, and uh, beyond adolescence and into, uh, you know, into uh, uh, the benefit for, uh, for uh, uh, mature you know, uh, uh, humans. 
And uh, I think what we're going to see today with the focus yesterday being on the prenatal, early childhood and childhoods, what we're going to focus on are some of the challenges that we see in our health environment today uh, with obesity, with the development of uh, really with a silent ep epidemic with fatty liver, with cognitive decline. So we've invited uh, really the world's leading investigators in these areas to come and share with us their science. And they're literally breaking news um, uh, uh, how they're looking at things. So I, I'm anticipating a very exciting day in a new chapter, and that is how it affects, uh, how codeine affects uh, all of us from prenatal all the way through to old age. Yeah, great summary, great way to kick off day two. Looking forward to it. Thank you, gentlemen. New research is changing everything we thought we knew about choline's impact on the cow and her calf, and top scientists have a lot to say about it. They are presenting new research that supports choline as a required nutrient to optimize milk production, choline as a required nutrient to support a healthy transition, choline as a required nutrient to improve calf health and growth, and choline as a required nutrient to increase colostrum quantity. This new research is solidifying choline's role as a required nutrient for essentially every cow, regardless of health status, milk production level, or body condition score. Learn more about the science that is changing the game and the choline source that is making it happen. Reassure Precision Release Choline from Balchem. Visit balchem.com slash scientists say to learn more. So our next guest is Dr. Mark Mannery. He's a professor of pediatrics at Washington University School of Medicine in, in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Dr. Mannery, uh, you gave a presentation, or will be giving a presentation later today, called Choline and Food Aid. Can you start off by telling us just a little bit about Food Aid and, and what that is and what's it, what it, does it entail? Well, Food Aid products are specially designed to address needs from crisis situations. So, you know, right now we have a huge crisis in Gaza, and, um, and so the, what's needed there are these specialized food aid products. They're, they're standardized, okay, for, to basically to meet needs of great deficiency or inadequacy. And so on the most extreme side, we've got something called ready-to-use therapeutic food for children who are starving to death. And we're not talking about people who are poor or don't have shoes or you know may, may not be eating like they should. We're talking about people that face a serious compromise, even death, in a few months if they can't get the proper food. So that's the one of the food aid products. And then for children who are just morally underweight in the process of starving, we have other food aid products. Choline is not uh, prescribed in any way in these products. And as an essential nutrient, choline seems to be kind of, uh, you know, as a lap behind many other nutrients, you know, in catching up. And so um, our goal of this invest of investigation is to place choline in food aid and say, hey, um, what happens? 
Okay, so it's kind of a research project then is what you're, uh, mm -hmm. what you're doing with Food Aid. It's you a, know, yeah. yeah, it's a clinical trial. So in other words, thousands of children who are receiving this Food Aid will be given either Food Aid with choline or the standard Food Aid. Okay. And we'll, and we'll measure, um, in some cases, cognition. In other cases, uh, well, how well they recover. And where's this research taking place? This is going to take place in Malawi, a place that I've been... Uh, so, parenthetically, uh, I'm introduced as a, someone from St. Louis, but where I work is in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. And that has been the case for a really long time, okay. 1985. Um, and so I have four teams, each in different countries, about 200 people who work for me, and we're doing trials, and food aid is one of our our uh, primary uh, foci. Okay, and so when you put this trial together, what's your hypothesis? What what are you anticipating that you'll see? I anticipate that we will see. Um, we saw a, a six to fifteen IQ point difference by adding fish oil or DHA, um, and when we combine that with choline, I'm expecting we'll see a doubling of that. Uh. And is that a certain age that you administer the choline, or does it matter? It, it's administered when they're when they're severely malnourished. Okay. So it doesn't. It isn't a, a well population. It's a population that's starving to death, and typically most of those kids are under two, uh, but they're n almost never uh, uh, under six months. Mm -hmm. And so your presentation is going to be uh, basically just kind of outlining the research that you're doing and the expected outcomes. Yeah, and talking about the stuff we've done in the past. Okay. So the, the, a trial with DHA. One of the really exciting things about doing trials like this that are in, uh, in the vernacular, they would say well-powered, which means that there's thousands of participants, which means that the outcomes of any 10 participants can't really bend the data one way or another, um, is that then you're in line to change policy. Okay. So what we did with... Um, with the DHA trial was we took that to the WHO, then we took it to Codex Alimentarius, so that is the, the FDA of the world, if you will, the international FDA, and now every child who gets ready to use therapeutic food has to have, it has to have DHA in it, mm -hmm. or the balance of the kind of fatty acids that that uh, constitute DHA, omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. Mm. And so, um, boy, I had another question here. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, no, d thank you. Dr. Mennery, I have an interesting question based on we've seen and actually we will see from other presentations here at the symposium that there's definitely a prenatal impact of DHA and choline combined in terms of providing greater DHA status or, mm. or, or more beneficial. Do you think that's true postnatally as well? Does that hold firm or? I don't know. I mean, we're... We were talking about the trial just now having to do with children, but we also are doing a trial with malnourished pregnant women okay. right now in Sierra Leone. We're adding DHA and choline to malnourished women. Okay, so women, not, no, not all pregnant women, but just the ones that are, that are starving and looking at cognition in the, uh, in the babies. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, certainly the... the 
you know, it's a hard, do I have an opinion on whether this is just a developmental issue, I think is what you're asking. So if you don't get it at the time development's going on yeah. versus an ongoing issue, um, I'm going to guess that it's, a, that it's an ongoing issue. Choline's a, the kind of metabolite that's, that's used every day for everyday work um, of the brain. And, and so having periods of your life when you don't have choline, I imagine if you then added it back into your diet, you would see better performance or something. Okay. Whereas I think, I don't think, you, you know, you would, you can have things that happen during very formative points in, in your life. Your, those like being in the womb, being in the first six months of life and so forth that stick with you forever. You know, one of the questions you are, one of the, the statements you made is that your research, uh, you're hoping that it'll help direct policy. Now, is that going to be policy just for um, malnourished children, or, or is this going to be broader in looking at uh, other children that, that are not necessarily uh, severely malnourished? No, I mean, the, the policy we're talking about has to do with what is in food aid products. Food aid so products, So food aid products have a certain, you know, um, specification. Mm-hmm. And you can't say that something is RUTF when it doesn't meet yeah. these 335 specifications. <laughs> and choline is going is we're hoping is going to be one of those. Okay, all right, very well. Tom, anything else? Uh, just uh, I th I think um, one of the things we've seen we talked a lot about cognitive is do you think there's going to be um, benefits because. One of my understanding is that one of the consequences of low choline is potential liver problems. So do you see that as something that you're looking at? or We're not specifically looking at it. I mean, uh, we have very strongly believed that fatty liver will be diminished in with choline supplementation. The populations we work with in sub-Saharan Africa just really aren't obese at all. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, why we say, oh, well, fatty liver is such a big problem going up oh, in our society has to do with obesity. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very well. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. Just kind of one final question. Um, would you mind kind of giving us just one key takeaway for uh, consumers out there? Um, one takeaway from the research that you've done, whether it's DHA with choline, what would be one message you'd give them? Well, I, I guess the message I, uh, the message I would, would impart for consumers is that getting ample amounts of choline from commonly used foods, particularly plant-based foods, is difficult. And so there has to, you know, the consumers need more help in how to achieve that. Very well. Maybe just kind of as a follow-up that. So it's difficult getting it for plant-based foods. So what are some foods that are, are perhaps rich in choline that, that we should be consuming? So the bugaboo with that particular question is that, yes, there's some choline in milk and there's choline in peanut, but if you had to increase your consumption high enough in those foods to get to these levels that are being talked about next door, that's not realistic. Got it. You, you know what I'm saying? That's why, why, why my message was it was tricky to get there. Yeah. And, and I'm not using the word supplement on purpose. Okay. <laughs> but, but I am intimating behind that 
that it might be something that, that is better addressed for many people through a supplement. Yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah. Th I think that's a really good point because what <laughs> we've seen definitely is anyone who's on a plant-based diet, just like they have to worry about B12, they worry about choline as well. And so I think, you know, it's always going to be food first when you talk about policy, and I get that. But liver just isn't eaten in great quantities anymore, and eggs are often very challenging, you know, for people, so... Yeah, yeah, and we're in the populations I work with in Sub-Saharan Africa are eating animal source foods once a week. Yeah, yes, that kind of thing. Not it's just not part of the. Yeah, mm. great. It's been a great discussion, uh, Dr. Mannery. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, thank you for everything you do. You're welcome. <laughs> And we're back with Rima Obed from uh, Saland University Hospital in Holmberg, Germany. Now, believe it or not, uh, Rima, I'm also somewhat from Germany. I was born in Frankfurt. I uh, did not stay there very long. My father was in the service, but uh, I've got that little bit in common. Um, you gave a presentation uh, earlier today called Choline and Pregnancy Outcomes. Can you kind of just give us a, a real top-line overview of some of the things you covered in your uh, presentation? Yes, indeed, we have shown that uh, if, uh, if, if choline amount in the diet of the mother is low or insufficient, uh, this will mean higher risk for getting uh, a child with serious birth defects. Uh, and this will also affect uh, the liver health of the fetus uh, and the infants. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, did you happen to follow um, some of the health impact on the, 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 the babies after they were born, like um, the immune function or anything like that? No, indeed not. But uh, the, this, uh, the study that we published um, is showing that if, if choline uh, is sufficient during lactation, this will uh, be good for the liver of the infants, the breastfed infants, of course. Okay. And did you um, share with the audience some research then um, that, that you've done personally there? Yeah, we, we have done a recent uh, a systematic review and meta-analysis on the association between uh, the dietary intake of the mother of choline and the risk of neural tube defects, Okay. like spina bifida, for example. Okay. Tom, you have anything? Yeah, I think just one of the things that we, we actually talked about with someone else is I think we hear a lot in um, pregnancy circles about obviously the risk of preeclampsia or in some cases gestational diabetes, these types of things. D do you think potentially, you know, given the discoveries you've had with liver health, could that be an issue for mom too with, um, you know, having liver issues during pregnancy? Because obviously a lot of that choline is going to the baby. Yeah, indeed, we, we speculate about this right now. And um, uh, there is a, a biomechanism me or biochemical pathway justifying that uh, if you give more choline, then uh, 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 the risk of diabetes or preeclampsia could be lower. But we don't have concrete studies on this uh, right now. So more research still needed. Yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting. So along those lines, what kind of research do you have planned for the future? Well, we, uh, for the near future, we are doing more research on uh, neural tube defects like spina bifida. 
uh, and uh, the interaction between choline and uh, folic acid or folate, because you know folic acid is standard in mm -hmm. prenatal uh, uh, nutrients or supplements, but not yet choline everywhere it should be. Um, and we are looking at the interaction between them so that if uh, the status of folate in, in the mother is low, then the importance of choline would be even more. So this is one study. The other study is on the relation uh, between the severity of congenital heart defects, which is uh, very common uh, compared to neural tube defects. W so we have 1% of the bursts with uh, heart defects, and this is a real problem with long-term and high costs. So we are looking at the association with low choline in blood of the children, the mother and the father, because we have seen in a pilot study that uh, there is a, a family pattern, which could be due to some uh, genetic background. Hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think given the fact that, that you've been doing a lot of research, it sounds like we know that choline adequacy during pregnancy is really, really important both to the health of the mom and the baby. If you met a mom on, an, on the elevator on your way out of here, um, what would you say just to her in a few sentences about choline and things you've learned? What, what recommendations might you have? Well, indeed, we know that uh, from population studies that in general, women in pregnancy age are not achieving the adequate intake of choline. Uh, and that's why I would advise all women to take choline from pre-pregnancy until the end of lactation if they are not able to achieve this through the normal diet. Right, because that can be a challenge. I know. Yeah, it is a challenge, uh, especially because the, the natural sources of choline are rich in, in lipids or in fats, and this is not the kind of diet usually consumed during pregnancy. You know, women try not to gain too much weight and so on. Yeah. So supplements well. could be a good alternative. That's great. Yeah, great advice. Just kind of want to follow up with one final question. So what is the recommended rate that, that, that you recommend in Germany? The total intake is currently, it's not my recommendation. I mean, we, we, we have like the recommendations are set by authorities and it's in Germany, like similar to the US, uh, 450 milligram okay. per day uh, during pregnancy and 550 during uh, lactation. Okay. Very good. So that's yeah. the minimum a mom should be getting. That's yeah. that's the the minimum amount. What is the m meaning of minimum amount? I mean, f even for this uh, adequate intake level, we don't have so m uh, strong evidence, but at least this amount should be achieved. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Mm. Rima, it's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> And we're back with Dr. Susan Smith. Uh, Susan is the Deputy Director of uh, UNC's Nutrition Research Institute. Um, Susan, you gave two presentations today. One was titled Choline and Genetics and Cognition. The other is the Blanket Recommendation. So why don't we start off with the first one? What was kind of the overall thesis of, of, of the talk that you gave there today? Sure. So we know that genetic variance in choline metabolism is important. What people don't realize, you know, we talk about genetic variants and we think these are rare things. 
out there, and most of them fortunately are rare, but in nutrition, they're actually fairly common in our population. And they reflect what the, the geographic location were we involved in and what our dietary practices were mm. in that location. Maybe we were within a group that had a high fish consumption, or maybe we had low access to meats, or maybe high access to milk and meat products. So that can capture gene variants and allow them to be spread in that population because of their diet practices. That was great maybe 12,000 years ago, but today with our modern McDonald's diet, <laughs> we now have this mismatch between what we were consuming then and what we're consuming now. So we worry about this a lot because we all carry these variants. They can be anywhere from 1% to 10% to 50% in a population. And we're only just now discovering what these are. And they, inf they affect a whole range of risk factors. For example, Alzheimer's disease, our heart disease, maybe risk for kidney failure. So we've all heard about these, but a lot of us don't understand or don't know that they also affect our nutritional needs. So that's the avenue that my work is entering from. And we were looking at choline and asking, are there choline variants that affect how powerful that choline is in treating a disease condition? And the situation we were looking at are children who had, unfortunately, prenatal exposure to alcohol, mm -hmm. which we know damages the brain. And alcohol is a powerfully addictive product. It's hard to stop drinking. So we hope that we can identify maybe nutritional solutions that will improve the brain function for people who are affected. And a very important nutrient that we already know about for this is choline. And we've talked a bit about in the podcast and you've chatted with others about how important choline is for brain health. Mm -hmm. So we asked a little portion of that question and said, in children who have you know, uh, brain damage from alcohol exposure, can we use choline to treat this? The answer is yes, it's very helpful. And what we did was we looked at the genetic piece. Are there some children who benefit more? And the answer was definitely yes. And so there is a gene variant that affects how efficiently we absorb choline from the diet. Okay. All right? And this variant, some people absorb it better, and some people absorb it worse. And it's a common variant. It's in between 5 to 40% of the population in the US. And it turns out that people who had the variant that reduces your ability to take it up, they benefited the most mm. from the choline. Because there's a bigger gap to fill. Because there was a bigger gap to fill. That's exactly right. Right. And so that was a very exciting to see. So now we know who to target this to. I think what's so encouraging about that to me is, you know, it's, it's hitting it from two points. Number one, I think a lot of times people think, well, what you do during pregnancy, that's, it's done. You know, there's nothing you can do. And I think you're giving us hope to say, 
there are things you can do after the baby's born Absolutely. to help improve with brain development, et cetera, and recover yeah. from some of those things. But then on the other level, we're going to get more information as time goes on about the specific needs of each person. Yeah. Is that something someone might get from like a 23andMe eventually or... Is it specialized now? Possibly. I will tell you that 23andMe is getting most of their information from folks like me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's so, good to know. So it's out there, and the information base is growing. I don't think they've got this one yet. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. So the other piece we then looked at in that question was we said, okay, if this gene really helps fill the gap, then... The prediction is that people who aren't getting choline will have poorer cognitive function because that gap isn't getting filled. Right. So we went and we looked at that. And to our surprise, it, that, that gap exists, but it wasn't just for the alcohol-exposed children. It was for all the children. Ah. All the children. And the children who carried one or two copies of this particular variant had reduced cognitive performance as compared to those children who were born lucky enough to have the other variant. Wow. Even though they were all eating the same diet, presumably. So this kind of ties interestingly into the title of your second um, you know, <laughs> talk, yeah. which I know is the blanket recommendation and the idea of, well, how much should mom be getting? Maybe talk a little bit about sure. that part of your speaking. Sure. We don't have a good answer yet, unfortunately. But we know that it's very likely that all the moms in this study were not getting enough. Just because we know in the U.S. population, most pregnancies are not consuming enough choline. The message hasn't gotten out the way we should. So on average, they're getting maybe 50, 60% of what they really need. So maybe the, the, the pregnancies where they have the, the good, I don't want to call it really a good variant or a bad variant, but the variant that has strong choline uptake, you can muddle through on that. Mm -hmm. And they're okay. But the pregnancies where they have the allele that, or the variant that isn't so good at absorbing choline, now if you've reduced the intake, that's a double whammy. And maybe those pregnancies would have a much better outcome if those pregnancies were able to hit that requirement and hit that target. And we think that's correct from other studies that have been done in humans showing that when the women consume enough uh, choline to hit that target that there's significant improvement in the outcomes. So we think some of those pregnancies are probably this variant. This is really fascinating research. And I think, you know, for those of us who are in the field and understand a little bit about choline, it's, it's super exciting. One of the challenges we always face is how do you translate this yeah. to a message that just everybody can. If you were to run into a mom, for example, walking out of the conference yeah. today, and she were to ask you, uh, you know, what do I need to do with choline? Why yeah. should I be concerned? What might your few messages yeah. be in yeah. layman's terms? I mean, the best message is that eating enough choline lets your baby achieve its full potential. That's a great you message. You don't want to yeah. limit that potential. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. I think we had, a, we had a really interesting talk when we went to um, the ACOG earlier in the year. And uh, one of the things was, um, you know, we basically said to our 
uh, in, as the message on our board, we said, imagine a nutrient that could change your baby's life, but 90% yeah. of moms aren't getting enough. Yeah. So I think that's really the message we got to get out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in pregnancy, of course, it's a really hard time because everybody's messaging you, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. This is one where it's so simple. Yeah. And it's a huge, if you will, bang for the buck. There's such a large benefit. And the risk from it is very, very, very small. So it, it's, you know, a, it's a can't-lose situation. Yeah. It's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Smith, you're a great ambassador for the cause. And yeah. uh, thank you for helping us get the word out there, right? We're doing the best we can. And uh, I'll ask, if you will, forward this, uh, this, this podcast around when it comes out. Sure. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for Thank inviting you so me. much. And we're back, and this time we've got two guests and a new co-host. Dr. Eric Capio is going to serve in the co-pilot seat on this one. My two guests are Isis Trujillo and... Evan Pauls. And Isis, this was not your first time uh, working with us before. I think you've been at the Real Science Exchange before uh, a couple years. No, it might have been pre-COVID even. Pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. So, so welcome back. It's good to have you here. Um, Isis, would you mind kind of just start us off by giving us an overview of the presentation that you gave uh, yesterday? Yeah, of course. Well, first, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure for me. Um, Yesterday, I talked about how important is uh, choline during pregnancy, and mostly I focus on brain development and eye development, and I share some of our findings in how important is when a pregnant woman is taking enough choline. That was interesting. The one thing I, I hadn't heard before was about the eye development. So what's unique about the eye that's different than the brain that, 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 allows, uh, that, that helps with eye development and choline? Well, actually, it's uh, the cells are coming from the same origin. So brain and eye are going to develop from the same cells. Okay. So basically, we, we found this uh, eye development to be happening more or less at the same time that uh, the cerebral cortex, that is the top part of our brains. And we saw that actually the neurons in our eyes that are receiving the light and connecting to the rest of uh, um, our uh, brain are also very important uh, to receive enough choline. Okay. Let me ask you this. Is it only um, uh, allocated to the brain or, or can it help with other organs as well as they develop? Well, that's a very interesting question. And um, we are not sure yet, um, but we think that it may have an effect on, on liver. But I think Evan can talk more about that in adults, but in um, embryonic development, we think that probably it will have some effect in the liver. Oh. So that's a great segue to Evan. Evan, give us kind of an overview of, of your presentation, and then, if you will, kind of talk about liver development. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, so my presentation focused primarily on looking at this um, intersection between coin availability and obesity and um, specifically the manifestations of some of the associated chronic disease states that we see with obesity, and <clears throat> really trying to get to an understanding of can choline um, and its metabolites help ameliorate some of the symptomologies of obesity. And one of the um, main ones that we are focusing on right now is um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or just fatty liver disease. And so at least, um, with uh, respect to um, liver development, although I focus more on the adult side, and we know um, it's very, very well documented that um, 
giving choline to someone who is deficient in it um, really helps ameliorate that um, fatty liver. Um, in development, uh, we know that at least I think there's been a lot of um, evidence on um, specifically for the mother in which if she's not supplied a sufficient amount of choline, um, not only is she donating a, a lot of her um, own stores of choline to the fetus so that it can develop um, properly, but also she's put at a much higher risk of developing fatty liver. Um, so I, I think that's a really interesting area and really um, needs a lot of focus to make sure that everyone has enough choline in their diet. No, so, so Isis, what I love about your work is it feels like in choline for so long, it's been a little bit of a situation where the mechanism is described as, you know, there's sort of inadequate choline epigenetics and then some problem occurs, right? What you've really shed a lot of light on that, particularly as it relates to brain and eye development. So can you maybe walk us through, you know, kind of a high level of what you found in these last, oh, I don't know, what, two, three years uh, about the mechanism of how choline deficiency can impact brain development? Yeah. Um, actually, what we found is that uh, the stem cells of the brain, and these are very particular cells that are going to give rise to neurons, to all the types of um, um, cells in the brain, are very sensitive to choline availability. So what we found is that if we don't have enough choline, if a mother doesn't, is not eating enough choline, these uh, cells in the baby brain are not proliferating enough. So basically, the mom needs to eat enough for the baby to build a better brain. And then these cells are going to proliferate, have a really good pool of this number of cells, and they are going to become neurons eventually. So part of um, what actually was also his dissertation was to find um, what was happening, what, how choline was making those cells to proliferate more. And we found that it's through um, microRNA, that it's a small um, RNA that does fine toning reg regulation, and that uh, that is what is regulating the uh, this pool of stem cells. So interesting. And so, I think another message that I learned about the conference overall, but especially I think the both of your sections was that it's not just important for expecting moms. I mean, there is a significant role of choline as we age. So, you know. Evan, for your work especially, this interaction between obesity and, and choline deficiency and choline levels, I mean, could you sort of elaborate on that and how that interplay might impact uh, specific aspects of health? Yeah, definitely. I think, like, one of the big things that we're really focused on, and at least we see emerging in our work, is that um, this idea of uh, lean mass and um, body, um, body mass, um, fat mass, excuse me, and so we know as we age, one of the large concerns is loss of lean muscle mass. And so one of the things that we've seen particularly in um, preclinically in males um, is that uh, we have this loss of uh, lean mass in um, these uh, preclinical models that aren't consuming an, a sufficient amount of choline. And so particularly in our um, older population and as we age, um, we're starting to think that perhaps like making sure that we have sufficient amounts of cloning, perhaps having um, fairly high levels of uh, coin intake um, may help uh, prevent that loss of uh, lean uh, mass. Wow. Wow. So one of the goals that we've had for this conference overall is trying to create just the, uh, short messages that we can sort of communicate externally. So maybe... Um, 
maybe what we can do is, Isis, if you wouldn't mind giving like a two to three sentence summary of just kind of what the state of the union is as it relates to choline and early life nutrition. And perhaps, Evan, you could do the same mm-hmm. for, let's just call it adult nutrition overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say uh, that if a woman is planning to get pregnant or is pregnant, needs to eat enough choline to make um, a baby with better cognition. That will be a very uh, straightforward uh, recommendation. Um, the other thing is that uh, it's important to consider also uh, during nursing or lactation to keep consuming choline because the development of the baby even occurs at the brain, uh, baby's brain occurs after birth. So uh, keeping the uh, breast milk with enough amounts of choline is going to be very important. Of course. Um, I think like one of the really interesting things that um, I didn't touch on too much in my talk, but I had in sort of the backslides a little bit, um, a lot of evidence is emerging that, you know, what is um, a diet to maintain health, right? And so a lot of people are looking for a lot of, um, perhaps you could say like quick fits, fixes, but ultimately there is nothing that is going to outweigh a healthy lifestyle and really what we think of is really high diet quality. Um, And so we are surrounded in an environment of a lot of processed and ultra processed foods. And so what we really need to focus on is just having a really high diet quality and ensuring that um, we get that high quality and that high quality diet is including choline because choline is a part of that really high quality diet. Exactly. That, I think that's what I love about nutrition overall is there's love and hate is that there's just a hundred boxes that you need to check in order to live that optimal lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, choline, of course, is an incredibly important part, but it's it's part of this bigger picture of overall health and diet. And I think you captured that really well. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. I uh, failed to mention early on that you're both employees of University of North Car- Carolina here uh, with the Nutrition Research Institute, I believe. Isis, you're uh, a researcher and you're a, a postdoc, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. All right. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for joining us today. This has been, this has been great. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. And we're back at the Future Directions in Coaling with my co-host, uh, Tom Druk. Our guest for this session is Dr. Brian White. He's Professor Emeritus from the University of Illinois. Now, this week we've been having a two-day symposium. We're in the middle of that. After the symposium, we're going to have a a, a scientific advisory board, and Brian's going to be giving a talk to that advisory board. Brian, why don't you give us just a kind of brief overview, kind of the big rocks of what your presentation is going to entail? Sure. So the... uh the microbiome has been implied into TMAO production and then the negative effects of TMAO that uh, primarily in cardiovascular disease. That cardiovascular disease side of the story I, is way outside of my expertise. My expertise is in the microbiome and the gut. And so the question comes, what is the role of the gut in the production of TMAO uh, that gets into the bloodstream of, of humans? And so there's been a lot of work out of primarily Stan Hazen's lab uh, that's shown a, a few things that are indisputable. So the indisputable thing is, is that microbes produce TMA. Yeah. TMA is taken up across the gut wall, and then in the liver is converted to TMAO. Okay. Can't, can't dispute that. Uh, what, you, what you can dispute from the literature is that there's a diet effect 
uh, on the production of TMAO, uh, and that that effect of that diet changes the microbiome in such a way that more TMAO is produced uh, in the bloodstream. Okay. And when I've looked at the literature for uh, for this effect, there's a couple of published papers that really um, were not reviewed very well. Okay. So the the manuscript in in most question is the Coast 2013 paper, and Figure Two is is really very poorly was very poorly reviewed, uh, and the data in that um, I have taken uh, from their small read archives. So I, I look at the microbiome. The microbiome is a community, and you can ask a couple of questions. You can ask four questions really. Uh, you can ask who's there. You can ask how many of them are there. You can ask what can they do. That's genetic potential. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask, what do they do? Mm -hmm. The simplest thing to do is to find out who's there and, in a rough sense, how many are there. That's using 16S ribosome RNA technology, which is what is done in the Coast paper. And so they took uh, individuals given different diets, omnivores versus herbivores versus vegetarians, and asked who is there uh, and how many are there. And then they tried to correlate that to uh, blood levels of TMAO. And in the paper, it looks pretty reasonably clear that there is a correlation between diet and the blood levels. But if you take apart that, that figure, too, carefully, and then I took the, their small read archive, the, the sequencing that they did of 16S ribosome RNA, and I did the analysis myself, and I got different results. And my results would be completely opposite of theirs, that there's a diet effect, and that there's a correlation between the microbiome in those diets and blood levels of TMAO. So um, through that exercise, I've contacted the authors. Uh, the authors have, in some cases, been cooperative in saying, yes, we can give you data, which is fine. Don't necessarily agree with my, with my results. They said I did different methodologies. So I went back and I did their methodology. Now the problem is, is that paper was done in 2013. I can do probably 80% of exactly what they did. The other 20%, because databases have changed, uh, technologies have changed, I can't reproduce. Uh, but the bulk data does not match their data. There's no correlation between diet, and there's no correlation between TMA levels in the blood. Uh, with with their cohorts, would you say, Doctor White, that it's like is it a you now have finer tools to analyze, or was it a matter of with what they had at the time, you know, wasn't necessarily drawing the same conclusions, or have you learned things since? I guess is my question. Uh, we have learned things since, but they, um, to me, and I've, I've been doing this since 1987, before a lot of people were doing it they didn't present two critical pieces of data, or one, one critical piece of data, let's say. And th these are called PCOAs, and they are dots, the dots in space, if you've looked at a microbiome paper, mm -hmm. they're the dots in space, and you draw a circle around the dots in space, and, and you can get two distinct sets of dots in space. Uh, those PCOAs are based upon sequence similarity between communities. Um, they did not present those PCOAs. They did a rough statistical model which you can do on a computer, and it throws out numbers and says they're different. Okay. 
uh, I never publish a paper or submit a paper, and, and this is, goes back to before they submit theirs, without PCOAs. If your PCOAs don't show clear circles, then there's no difference. And, and when I redid their data and then generated PCOAs, uh, there's no difference. And the statistics show there's no difference. Uh, it's a finer level of, of uh, analysis, but they had all the data to do it. It's literally a push of a button and about 48 hours of CPU time, unsupervised. Mm. Uh, why they either, what, what they say they did not do that, they just used the statistical model. Uh, why they didn't do the PCOAs, I have no idea. Mm. But, if, but if you saw those, you'd go, nope, sorry. So it's created a, a bit of a controversy. A big controversy. Yes, and so what are the next steps to get to the bottom of this, right? Because I'm assuming they're saying they're right and you're saying you're not so sure. And So the, the literature since that is, is, is mixed as well. Okay. I mean, you can find probably as many papers out in the literature that say that TMAO uh, levels in the serum is linked to the biome as you can say is not. Uh, again, the indisputable thing is, is that that microbes in the gut produce TMA. Yeah. But does that, can you correlate that to blood levels? And I haven't seen much in the literature that convinces me that the community structure, the presence of those organisms uh, that do produce TMA is correlated or associated with um, blood levels of TMAO. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the, the Hazen group has taken their set of data and they've gone to, to march with it. Uh, and there's plenty of data out in the literature, which is contradictory to that, contradictory to that, but it's, they're, they're going with their story. Yeah. Now, he just recently published a paper, and I'll present a little bit of this CSAB meeting, where he tried to correlate or do predictive modeling of the organisms in the gut uh, and their genes and try to say, can we use a study where we have cohorts that have high TMAO versus low TMAO, and can we look at the gene content and the organism content in the gut, this community structure analysis, who's there and what's their potential to predict blood levels of TMAO? And guess what? They couldn't. Mm. Now, the fallback is you're not looking at activity, which is the last piece of that puzzle, just because they're not, they're, you don't have a correlation of the gene content right. doesn't mean you don't have a gene a correlation of the activity. Mm -hmm. I, I would suspect that they're not going to find that if they look at it. Yeah. Well, this is this has been super fascinating. I think we're going to hear a lot of other talks about TMAO and some of the causality versus the association and all that. But it's fantastic to hear some of this deep dive into the microbiome piece, which clearly is your area of expertise. So well, we one it. thing with with almost all the microbiome studies out there. Uh, causation is the gorilla in the room. And there's really only one disease that has been absolutely correlated to the gut microbiome, and that's C. diff. Okay. All the rest of them, there's, there's associations, but the causation route has never been defined for any other disease. So is it the microbiome that causes the disease, or does the disease change the microbiome? And f the only one that's been established for is C. diff mm. out of all the, all the ones that are out there. So It's great context. Yeah. yeah. Well, we thank you for your time today. Thank you for uh, uh, being a part of our advisory board. And uh, look forward to talking to you later on today. Thanks very much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you.
Our next guest is uh, Dr. Jonathan Bortz with Balchem. He's the VP of Nutrition Science here at Balchem. Jonathan, you gave a presentation today called uh, TMAO and Choline, a Mechanistic Perspective. So give us kind of a bit of an overview of what your, your pre presentation was all about. Sure, Scott. So first of all, um, in the last several years, there's been attention being paid to some concerns about choline. Um, really advanced uh, particularly by one group of investigators who have claimed that uh, excessive intake of meat and eggs and uh, animal source foods that land up contributing either choline or carnitine um, land up generating a substance in the blood called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. And what their hypothesis has been is that this... Uh, has a negative effect on the cardiovascular system and has been associated with a higher incidence of cardiovascular uh, disease. Um, what I uh, uh, demonstrated, or at least tried to share with my audience today, was that we have taken this concern, the safety concern, very seriously, have looked into the, uh, the uh, with, with tremendous breadth and depth uh, into the studies that have been performed to try and ascertain whether there were some real safety issues associated with choline, which is uh, our product that we market. And um, fortunately was uh, supported by our senior management to say, explore the science, let the science speak and tell us whether there are issues uh, to be concerned about or not. And I'm happy to say that what I presented were multiple examples of, of how the concerns about choline with respect to TMAO really cannot be associated, cannot be supported. Uh, the claimants uh, maintain that there is a causative effect between choline, TMO, and cardiovascular disease. But um, what I was able to present to the audience was that this is really not the case. Now, is there new research or additional research that's going to be required to demonstrate that? Or So the answer is uh, some of the studies that in initially uh, were uh, published uh, in support of this hypothesis have been repeated um, and have failed to demonstrate the association. And uh, furthermore, we have uh, continued to look for and support uh, any science that can tease out and evaluate the whole body of information and literature um, to determine uh, uh, whether there's anything there or not. So there is going to be some ongoing work. We don't believe that this is going to go away overnight, at least the concern. But we are very satisfied that choline does not represent a risk to uh, any users, young or old. Mm. Makes sense. I mean, for most folks, we've been asking them to summarize uh, sort of the State of the Union in their particular area in a couple of sentences. I think you just said that really nicely. I mean, is there anything else or anything else you'd like to elaborate on this area briefly for anyone who might be listening that's, you know, uh, kind of confused by all the stuff that's out there? I mean, how do they make heads or tails of, the, of this connection? Sure. Well, let's, uh, a, a very easy and um, a clear example is that TMAO, which again is the substance that is found in high concentrations in uh, deep sea uh, fish. Um, when a, uh, a meal is had of cod or uh, halibut or uh, whatever, okay, 
the amount of uh, TMAO that gets ingested by, uh, by eating this meal is in the several thousand-fold higher than what would be generated uh, by eating an egg or you know, having a, uh, a rib steak. So the question is, if this is the case, if TMAO is noxious and, and toxic to the cardiovascular system, Eric, then why is it that in multiple, multiple studies, the consumption of fish has been associated with actually a decrease in cardiovascular risk. So for example, in a meta-analysis of over 360,000 uh, patients, okay, it's been found that this reduction is nearly 20% okay, on fish eaters who consume much higher amounts of TMAO than what is contained in food substances that are rich in choline and carnitine. Yeah, and, and so I, I guess what, uh, what you're trying to say is, or what I'm understanding from you, is that this connection doesn't really make a lot of sense when you consider that fish consumption is really kind of a bedrock principle of dietary guidance for cardiovascular disease prevention, and that doesn't really match with the elevated TMA concentration that's found in fish, right? right. These two things are right. It doesn't match at all, and um, and even though, and even you know what what I anticipate is that when people hear about this, they say, "Well, what's there to talk about?" Mm -hmm. um, and there really isn't anything to talk about. However, this hypothesis has been tied to the microbiome. Okay, which is a very sort of uh, sexy uh, and attractive and new age way of looking at disease and unfortunately there too uh, the uh, the uh, uh, you know more intensive investigation of their microbiome studies do not hold up okay to support the their own hypothesis in fact uh, recently the same group has published a study um, walking back some of the association mm -hmm. between the microbiome uh, and uh, various um, uh, responses, you know, to the ingestion of choline and carnitine. Are there any other big factors that might be confounding this relationship between TMAO and disease? Maybe perhaps in the study populations that have been. Yeah, so that's a it's a great question, and the answer is yes. TMAO is extraordinarily sensitive to even minuscule decreases in normal renal function. Mm. So in other words, uh, uh, give you an example, the normal renal function um, uh, a healthy adult is about 100 milliliters per minute okay, that flows through the kidneys. When there's a drop to less than 90, which by the way is pretty normal for a lot of people in their mm. late 50s and 60s, okay, the, um, the amount of TMAO that goes up is dramatic. Um, much more, it's a much more sensitive marker than even typical medical markers of renal uh, insufficiency, which is uh, blood urea, nitrogen, and, and, and creatinine. So TMAO is extraordinarily sensitive to that. And the population that was studied that was found to have TMO elevated also happened to be in, in patients who were diabetic, who were smokers, who were hypertensives, who had kidney disease, who had low kidney uh, function, much mm -hmm. lower than 90 milliliters per, per minute. And as a result, you would expect to find elevated TMAO. That doesn't mean that TMAO has caused the cardiovascular disease, which is very commonly found in smokers, diabetics, hypertensive individuals. So the population that was studied in which this was brought out okay, as proof of TMO's role in cardiovascular disease, it's really a sick population. Mm -hmm. no, Many of whom who'd had, I mean, 
40-50% of whom would have cardiovascular disease diagnosed, heart attacks, strokes, okay? So give me a break, okay? Yeah. TMO is not a risk factor. Yeah. Okay, a risk factor is something that you identify in a healthy population, track, and then see that, oh, wow, people who've had this particular risk factor have a higher chance of developing the disease. Mm. They did it the other way around. They looked at a sick population, picked out TMAO, and then looked for the reason for it. So it sounds like, you know, a quick summary of that, I guess, would be there's, we'll call it mechanistic issues with the hypothesis on how TMAO might impact health. There's also some confounding biases, perhaps, in some of the epi data that's out there uh, connecting TMAO to, to cardiovascular disease endpoints. And, uh, you know, I think at this stage it seems, you know, difficult to really make a, a solid conclusion about that or the solid conclusion that uh, there is this significant concern right. as well. Well, well, we have, I think, done more than our due diligence. We've also invited experts to come in. One of the areas, that, what, one of the things that's been interesting is that these studies that have published these this hy uh, hypothesized uh, construct really uh, go into multiple different non-overlapping areas of expertise that most people, very few people actually contain or have all the tools in order to understand all the components. So when we've actually spoken to experts in all of these areas, what we have found is that um, not only are there real challenges in the way in which the science has been performed, but the, um, um, so, so we are very comfortable that we've done our due diligence to make sure that choline is a absolutely safe nutritional uh, uh, um, you know, nutrient. It's essential for so many things. How can it be uh, toxic? Okay, mm -hmm. it's, we, we suggesting it in much lower le uh, levels than what's been agreed to by the Institute of Medicine as the upper limit. Um, so it doesn't make sense. However, um, in a sense, the genie's been uh, let out of the bottle. You know, it's not that easy to put it back in, mm -hmm. okay, um, even though we're comfortable that uh, the uh, veracity of the science, I think, doesn't stand up to uh, what has been claimed. Mm. Dr. Bortz, uh, this is obviously an important issue, and I want to thank you for your dedication to understanding and explaining the data and coming on with us to set the record straight. So thank you for joining us My today. My pleasure, Scott. Thank You're you. You're all right, and our next session is with uh, Dr. Julia Maeve Bonner. Uh, Dr. Bonner is, has a PhD in molecular genetics from the University of Toronto, and she did her postdoc at MIT. She's now the principal scientist at Sanofi. Uh, Dr. Bonner, I got to tell you, um, out of all the amazing presentations that we saw at the uh, uh, New Directions in Choline uh, Symposia, Yours was my favorite, and I think that's probably because, you know, it was a bit personal for me. I've got two grandmothers that passed away with Alzheimer's. My mother passed away a couple years ago with Alzheimer's, and I have a younger brother that's got the uh, the early onset version of that. So I was obviously uh, very attentive in, in, in listening to your, your presentation, found it very interesting. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, kind of just give us a general overview of you know, kind of the high points of what your presentation was about. Um, sure. Uh, first, you know, I'm sorry to hear about um, your grandmother and your mother and your brother. Um, you know, this this is why we do this work. It's it's a devastating disease. So uh, I'm sorry to hear about that. Um, I, I hope you know that we can we can use some of this work to to move 
the field forward. So the summary of my um, yeah, research is uh, at MIT. So um, in the lab of Dr. Li Weizai, I was working on uh, a genetic mod um, risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, APOE4. So APOE4 is the most validated, highly validated risk factor, genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Occurs in about 14% of the um, population, the control population, and is enriched to about 50% of Alzheimer's disease patients. Um, so, and it is dose dependent. So, you know, the more, if you get one copy of APOE4, uh, you have an increased risk of about fourfold. If you have two copies, it's about 10 to 12 fold. Um, so it's clearly like very closely linked to Alzheimer's disease risk. And we wanted to understand, um, you know, what is, what is happening in APOE4 compared to the non-risk, uh, or neutral risk allele rather, which is APOE3, uh, what's happening in the risk version versus the non-risk that's changing the cellular state changing um, the brain ultimately uh, to create this sort of early system of risk. So we were characterizing um, this gene and this variant of the gene, the risk version, in um, the cell type in the brain that makes the most of this protein. Um, so these are astrocytes. These are glia. They support neuronal cells. They also have many functions in the brain, one of which is to sort of um, it's a major modifier of lipid homeostasis. So this is the the fats in the brain that are, you know, the cell surface, the the, the membranes of the brain, the intracellular um, organelle membranes, and, you know, many important components that get transferred that are important for cell function and then get transferred between cells. And APOE, the protein, is um, one of the major uh, facilitators of transport of, of these kind of lipids, these fats between cells. Um, and so what we found is that in this brain cell type astrocytes, um, there was a, a really um, distinct shift in the lipidome. This is all the kinds of lipids that are being made or accumulated in the cell. And uh, the APOE4, the risk version, accumulated neutral lipids uh, uh, to a much higher degree, a particular kind of lipids, um, especially these triacylglycerols. Um, these are the kind of lipids that accumulate in um, these intracellular compartments called lipid droplets. Um, these, uh, this accumulation was associated, is associated with dysfunction of many different kinds of functions in the cell. Um, we found that uh, using astrocytes as well as um, from work that we started initially in Susan Lindquist's lab at the Whitehead um, in yeast, that we were able to um, pinpoint a node a biochemical node where um, we could kind of influence this lipid dysomeostasis and the outcome, the resulting outcome for the cell. So we found that um, we were able to uh, discover that if these cells were grown in a media that was um, supplemented with choline or rich in choline compared to media that was um, deficient or minimal in choline, that we could really alter this lipid imbalance and move it a lot if in the media that was supplemented for choline move these cells quite a bit closer to the cells that were in this non-risk state the apoe3 we could move that lipidome so all the kinds of uh, lipids it's making but especially these neutral lipids that we're accumulating these triacylglycerols we could move them a lot closer to sort of apoe3 or non-risk levels um, and then through a lot of genetic work we were able to pinpoint that this was actually a phosphatidylcholine synthesis.
Um, so we saw that the Kennedy pathway of phosphatidylcholine synthesis was critical for this effect of choline on modifying the lipid balance. Um, we then uh, have been, since then, that work was published in Science Translational Medicine. Um, and since then, we've um, done a lot of work to try and see, could we move this into a, a potential you know, um, therapeutic in, a, in an in vivo and in an intact animal. So we were looking at um, mice that have Alzheimer's disease genes knocked in. So these are pro-amyloid, amyloidogenic genes. Um, this means that these mice have mutations, human genes with mutations in them that cause them to accumulate um, the plaques that we see in human brains in Alzheimer's disease. And also in the background of this, they had the human ApoE uh, knocked in, which means that they're expressing human ApoE, either three or four. And in this ApoE4 background with this amyloidogenic um, mouse model, we fed them diet that was higher, low in choline. And we saw um, a, a really nice protection against um, the accumulation of some of this Alzheimer's related uh, damage, as well as a shift in the lipidome um, of the cells that we looked at. Uh, and some of the tissues we looked at, and uh, we're still characterizing these outcomes, um, but we, we're excited. We think that, you know, it's possible that um, something that is as simple as, as, um, as a dietary supplement could, could maybe merely make a difference, especially for those who, who have a copy of this, this particular risk allele. Um, so it could be basically through modifying this... Um, lipid imbalance, we're hopefully kind of restoring a little bit of the norm or um, non-risk state to, to the cells that might otherwise kind of be in this imbalanced or risk state. So that's the, that's the big, the gist. Yep. That's a big picture. I, I'm kind of curious. <clears throat> so if, if uh, and I'm going to ask you a question, I know you don't know the answer to, but I'm going to ask you to speculate is, so if you were to use uh, choline supplementation to kind of stave off uh, Alzheimer's, if, if you had uh, the APOE gene, um, would you have to be taking that or supplementing throughout lifetime? Or, um, when, when would be the best time to be making sure you had enough choline supplementation in your diet? So, you know, we, can't say these are mice and cells in a dish we have human cells in addition they're mice um so we of course have to be very careful about making any claims that um that this you know can have a beneficial have the beneficial effect in humans that we would hope um there have been um previous um clinical trials looking at choline supplementation in alzheimer's disease with some mixed results um a lot of those weren't stratified for ApoE status, like whether they were ApoE4 versus ApoE3. Um, and there is one study where it does look like when they did stratify that the ApoE4 responder or carriers were uh, responded a little bit better. Um, but, you know, we'd need to do a more careful, you know, very on purpose, intentional study in humans looking at, you know, different levels of choline with, you know, in ApoE4 carriers, having tracked, you know, ideally looking at sort of certain lipid markers maybe in their blood and following that, uh, you know, a, a clinical trial is, is required to be able to say this. Um, and, and we need to be careful to make sure we don't, we don't overstate claims. But I think that, you know, our science suggests that, that it should be possible and that, um, that it's worth 
doing these kind of studies to identify if there is, you know, uh, an intervention like a supplement, like food, like, you know, eating choline-rich uh, foods that, that could make a difference because, of course, this would be uh, a wonderful thing. Um, one thing I can say is that, in general, um, the according to sort of nutritional studies, um, you know, people tend not to get enough choline uh, just by, you know, Surgeon General recommendations. Um, so I think that it's it's probably safe to say that you, you should get as much as is recommended currently. And then hopefully we can, um, you know, do more studies to, to really identify if it has a specific benefit for, for ApoE4 carriers. And can you talk a little bit about maybe are there future research uh, studies planned either by yourself or um, others? So there is a um, small study uh, currently being planned um, in collaboration with uh, MIT and um, the Neurodegeneration Consortium out of MD Anderson, uh, and I think with uh, Balkem that have sort of been working together to um, try and get uh, not a you know cl full phase one clinical trial or phase two, but um, a uh, clinical study in humans to try and identify biomarkers that would change on different levels of choline, and then this would create you know the the kind of uh, readouts we would need to know before going into uh, a clinical trial. But of course, clinical trials that are then very expensive. So we'd have to sort of see what happens after that. But this would be, you know, hopefully a proof of principle that we can change important and relevant biomarkers. And then those can serve as readouts in a potentially bigger study. Eric, you have any questions? Yeah, I'm just curious if maybe you can comment on... Um what the relationship is between, say, choline intake and neurodegeneration in epidemiological literature. Um, is there a connection between these two things? I mean... Uh, so there's, there's correlative uh, evidence, which is that um, groups that are at risk for low choline, there's all, you know, an overlap of, of groups that are at risk for low choline versus groups that are at high risk for AD. So, for instance, women are high, at higher risk for uh, low choline, um, you know, both from in the um, potential childbearing uh, times when, when there's, because choline is also in the folate um, cycle, uh, folate metabolism pathway. So uh, there's a much higher requirement um, for choline in women. And so then you could, um, they are potentially at risk for being uh, older people. Uh, it's been reported that uh, the elderly, there is a decrease in their ability to uptake choline, even, you know, to whatever level that they have it circulating from their diet, but there's a decreased ability to um, take it up. Uh, so this could also increase risk. And of course, we know that age is the biggest risk factor for, for AD. Um, and there are some studies that suggest that um, AD uh, patients are, you know, have lower levels of choline, but it's not, it's not super consistent. Um, so that would, you know, with th those studies kind of depends on, on what's being measured. Definitely an interesting emerging area for sure. Um, really need to see sort of some of this pioneering work you've done mechanistically. I think the picture is very complex. I mean, as you said, this relationship between APOE4 and other dietary factors is tricky. And I think something that's only been appreciate in the last, I don't know, let's mm -hmm. say 10 years or so, really, to a certain degree. I mean, I do, the reason I love your work in particular, one of the reasons, is because um, 
I do think this appreciation for specific genetic markers and how specific dietary interventions might help people with those genetic markers, I think is uh, incredibly important. You know, we're, we're definitely at a stage, I think, in the field of nutrition where um, a lot of the sort of big picture general population recommendations are, have definitely been covered. And I think this area of nutrigenetics, precision nutrition, personalized nutrition, whatever buzzword you want, um, is definitely the future. So I, yeah. I really well, thank you. And I think I agree. I think that, um, you know, similarly, from, you know, a field of Alzheimer's research, you know, we we've done a lot where we try and look at sort of a broad scope of, of Alzheimer's disease suffering patients, and compare, you know, all AD against all control. And, you know, the more we learn, the more we understand that there might be subtypes um, within the disease, there might be, you know, within that all kind of converge on a clinical um, presentation of memory defects and neuronal loss. But, you know, there might be underlying, um, you know, mechanisms that that are slightly different or have slightly different sort of origins or starting points. Um, and if we can identify that that's, that's the case, if we understand whether or not that's the case, and then we can potentially understand that there are more targeted therapies that might be more, more amenable to some AD patients versus others and and that if we understand sort of how they're getting to their clinical presentation we can we can have a more effective series of therapies in your animal study do you know um, what the equivalency would be to a human diet for example in the supplemented mice where they get in yeah so yeah so the mouse recommended the choline dietary recommendations for mice are very high much higher than for humans um, so uh, the we went basically our dietary uh, paradigm. We wanted to kind of try and keep as you know within the scope of what a sort of healthy mouse would would see. So we went to sort of the National Research Council minimum and maximum, um, and those were about uh, um, about fivefold different um, between the minimum choline and the maximum choline, about fivefold different um, amounts of choline. Uh, but, you know, those are much higher, um, you know, they're, you know, in grams per kg um, amounts of choline in the diet compared to, you know, 450 mgs per day that is recommended for adult males um, or adult females. Uh, 450 mgs per day, somewhere in that range. Um, there's there are much higher requirement in, in mice. So we, we were within the sort of healthy mouse range, and then a five-fold increase in the supplemented diet. I do think your comment is uh, is very prudent, right? I mean, I think uh, what we <clears throat> we know, of course, that before making any kind of, you know, uh, strong claims about the connection between choline and the disease, of course, we need, you know, rigorous RCTs. Um, but I do think as a, as a prudent dietary piece of advice, it's probably smart to at least stick to trying to get your daily requirement. Um, so I think you're, I would agree. I think you're spot on with that uh, that recommendation. Just tough. Not a lot of people do that, right? I think you said, you, you know, depending on the source, it's what, 6 to 10% of people get enough? I mean, it's really not a lot. So uh, a lot of work to be done in terms of education and awareness. That it's tough to get the appropriate dietary amount of choline. So humans do make some choline, um, but not enough. We It is a, a required nutrient. So um it can't, you know, it's depending on your diet. I think, you know, the, the recommendations that are always the case for 
most diseases of aging, most healthy living in general, which is, you know, a good, a good balanced diet and, and, you know, taking care of yourself in, in every way that you're able to are always safe recommendations. But again, in terms of specific recommendations for, you know, choline intake beyond the already, we, we would need to do the careful studies, but um, yeah, most people don't, don't even achieve that much. So, um, so it seems, it seems prudent to watch what you're eating and do your best. Dr. Bonner, as we get ready to close out here, any key takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience? Uh, well, I appreciate, you know, that, that this is an, one of the sort of newer angles of looking at Alzheimer's disease is looking at it from a sort of metabolic, um, you know, potentially nutritionally accessible um, uh, viewpoint. I think one of the key, um, one of the things that will help, I think, to understand um, different kind of interventions and how they can be most helpful is these kind of mechanistic studies, these kind of uh, this work where we can we can understand you know there are broad benefits to the things that we know our body needs, but if we can actually you know start linking those to specific pathways to specific mechanisms to specific you know requirements that may be greater or lesser in certain risk states, then I think you know there's a much greater case. It's much easier to to convey that information to uh, a general public, but also hopefully to convince. Um, you know, medical, the medical field that, that these are valuable insights. Um, and of course, with that, I just would also like to say that all this work is, uh, you know, it's publicly funded. We, um, we are excited to share it. We hope that people can learn from it. Um, and, you know, the, the most important thing is if we can try and make a difference for people who are suffering from, from this terrible disease. Yep. Well said. I want to thank you for your, your work on this important subject, and I want to thank you for joining oh, us thank here you. today. Yeah, happy Appreciate to. It. Thank you. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Well, folks, we just concluded the uh, future directions in choline. I, I hope you've been able to, to join us for uh, all of the interviews so far. If not, go, uh, please go back and listen to uh, the first one. Uh, we started off the, uh, the, the, the conference um, with, with uh, Dr. Stephen Hursting and Dr. Susan Smith, both uh, with UNC uh, here. And we, we asked you, you know, what does success look like? And so and I'm not going to ex ask that exact question, but was it everything you expected? You know, it was more than I expected, actually. So we had more like 90 people here. Um, one one uh, thing we were really looking forward to was showing our campus off in, in our facilities. And so that was so much fun for us to do. Uh, but also the science was just unbelievably good. And the progress that has been made uh, in uh, the, you know, we, we talked about this 25 years since really choline was established as a nutrient. Um, the, the, the progress over that 25 years is remarkable. And we heard that um, some, just so many exciting talks. And to me, 
we, you know, you expect that from some of our senior folks that were here. To me, the highlight was our, our emerging stars and um, the excitement they have in this, the new ideas that they're bringing to the field. Uh, the field's in fantastic shape, um, and so that was really exciting. So I, I think I said we, you know, we were looking at what would be a touchdown. What would be, what, what could we spike the ball on? Well, I think we, I think we scored eight touchdowns in this uh, in this event. <laughs> well said, Susan. Based on what you heard this week, so what are the future directions of Coaline? Yeah. So it was interesting reflecting upon where we were and where we are now. And so we came into the conference. What had set up Coaline as an essential nutrient was the fact that it promotes liver health and it promotes skeletal muscle health. And what we heard about this time was we saw tremendous cognitive effects when given during pregnancy and early childhood. It's building smarter brains in babies. We learned about a potential role in Alzheimer's disease. We learned about roles in, uh, again, liver health, but also it's its potential for obesity and helping to overcome some of the side effects that the ill health that can accompany obesity. Just so much exciting information. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but reflect on after hearing a lot of these presentations and, and all the amazing benefits of, of adequate sub, uh, choline supplementation, why is it so, why is it the, the nutrient nobody's heard of, right? It's just, that's <laughs> a little confounding to me. I don't know if you guys have an answer for that, but. One thing I, I learned uh, is that there haven't been many opportunities for the broad field to get together. It's yeah. been in various, those that work on early development, maybe go to pediatric meetings. Those that work on later in life are going to more the aging or the Alzheimer's types of conferences. Um, but this, this may be uh, the first time for, for many in the field that have gotten together with the whole breadth of the field. And so I think that that's, we're going to do it again, by the way, in two years. I made, I made the commitment that um, let's start this party again in two more years and, uh, and, and invite some of our friends at NIH, FDA, uh, some of the other decision makers um, in, in, the, in the area of nutrition and disease health you know, promotion, um, to, to come and listen to this progress. And yeah. So we're, we're looking forward to that already. And if I might, I'd, I'd uh, please invite some of our uh, researchers in animal nutrition. Yes. There's a lot of bright people out there doing some pretty cool stuff. Now, it's not exactly what you guys are doing, but I think there might be some synergies there where, where you can learn from each other. 100%. We had actually uh, a couple of veterinary uh, medicine uh, researchers here that, that shared some of their results in in the animal health area, fascinating, and uh, I think that's exactly right. We'll have a we'll have a whole session, I think, in, around that topic next time. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'm really excited about the opportunity to come back in two years. I think and show all the progress we've made. Obviously, there's been a lot since 1998, but I think back even five years ago, we held a, a roundtable um, with some of the leaders um, in you know like people from NIH and from USDA. And I remember one of the fellows putting up on the, uh, the screen, you know, a picture of choline with 500 miles to go before getting to the science that they needed for a DRI. And I think in two years, when we bring those guys back, we're going to be able to show that we've been driving through the night. We got, <laughs> we're a yes. lot closer than they think. That's a great, great yeah. way to put it. I love that. Yeah. I think that's true, because when we were organizing the conference, it was so hard to pick and choose yeah. what work we could feature. We could have filled a week mm -hmm. easily. 
And so in two years' time, it's going to be really exciting to, s to hopefully we can expand this a little and hear even more about it. Yeah, yep. Super. I also love the opportunity, and you brought it up, of the young scientists yeah. to present. It was great to see the posters and really celebrate some of the, the up-and-coming work. So lots to build on and more exciting things to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things you did right at the end of the conference is you had these breakout sessions where everybody got together and was sharing ideas, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of sparks flying and, 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 and innovation going on. I really enjoyed listening in on those. Um, you know, can you share some of the ideas that, that, the, that the teams came back with? Eat more choline. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that, that was, was a theme. <laughs> I think one un unexpected discussion circled around the effects of the climate change and heat stress and the impact that could be having upon both choline needs as well as the choline content of foods. We know that it's having an impact, say, upon the protein content of certain plants and the like, but we don't know what that impact is going to be with choline. And so there's an area of research to think about. Mm. Wow, yeah. Interesting. I was, I was struck by the, I think it's a sign of the maturation of the field of efforts to really align research and um, standardize, really, so that uh, data can be pooled in future and get more powerful um, summaries of data, such as meta-analyses, where, where you can put multiple studies together and, and get a much stronger signal than a single study. And so there were, there were efforts in that regard of aligning on biomarkers, on standardizing dosing and type of choline administered and study design so that uh, those types of pooling efforts can, can occur in a few years. And I think that will really move things forward. So uh, I, was, I was struck by that. Yeah. Well, yeah. on behalf of the Balchem team, because I just it wouldn't be fair to close this without saying, we really appreciate all the leadership from UNC and the Nutrition Research Institute over the past years. And we're really excited to have started this ball rolling and to continue it. So thank you so much for hosting us. Yeah, thank well, you very much. Yeah, well said, Tom. One final question for each of you guys. Uh, Dr. Capio uh, did a nice job of summarizing things there toward the end, and what yes. he did was he wanted he asked everybody in two to three sentences, you know, tell us, tell us what the key takeaways are. And so, you know, use this opportunity, right, to, to, to share this uh, succinct message to, to a wider audience. So I don't know which of you guys would like to start, but... I, I'll, I'll say choline is, is, looks like an easy way to uh, work toward a healthy lifespan, uh, a life, uh, and, and not just a lifespan, but a health span. health span. It's touching everything from fetal development through early childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and into aging. And it's just such a huge spread and an easy way to address that. Mm. More eggs, take more choline. Mm. Well said. Well said. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> Perfectly said. <laughs> So we're gonna leave it there. All, All right. right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, folks. Eat more coal. Eat more coal. That's what, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, listen. Uh, this has been a great conference. I uh, want to thank you guys for putting it together. Thank you for joining us. This has been a blast. Uh, also, want to thank our loyal audience for joining us once again. I hope you learned something. Hope you had some fun, and we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour, and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. 
Just like or subscribe to The Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.